Welcome to the 10 Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. This podcast takes one medical subject and explores it for a maximum of 10 minutes. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Young. Trauma has become the most frequent cause of death of the OB patient in the United States. Although maternal mortality due to other causes such as infection, hemorrhage, hypertension, and thromboembolism has declined over the years, the number of maternal deaths due to penetrating trauma, suicide, homicide, and motor vehicle accidents has risen steadily. Accidental injuries occur in 6-7% of all pregnant patients. Penetrating trauma accounts for as many as 36% of maternal deaths. In the case of gunshot wounds to the pregnant abdomen, overall maternal mortality is low at about 4%. The death of the fetus, on the other hand, is high, ranging from 40 to 75%. Severe blunt force trauma can cause an abruptio placenta, a uterine rupture, or begin premature labor as the body attempts to expel the fetus in an attempt to save the mother's life. Although the initial assessment and management priorities for the resuscitation of the injured pregnant patient are the same as those for other traumatized patients, the specific anatomical and physiological changes that occurred during pregnancy may alter the response to injury and hence necessitate a modified approach to the resuscitation process. The main principle guiding therapy must be that resuscitating the mother will also facilitate in resuscitating the fetus. Increases in cardiac output and blood volume begin early in the first trimester and are 30 to 40% above the non-pregnant state by 28 weeks. This relative hypervolemic state in the hemodilution of the mother is protective for her because fewer red blood cells are lost during hemorrhage. The increased amount of blood volume prepares the mother for blood loss that accompanies vaginal delivery, which is about 500 milliliters of blood loss, or C-section, 1,000 milliliters of blood loss. It's important to keep in mind that almost 40% of maternal blood volume may be lost prior to the manifestation of signs of maternal shock. The pulse will tend to increase to the upper ranges of normal at this time. Keep in mind that any pregnant patient with a pulse of greater than 100 beats per minute should be considered in shock until proven otherwise. As a woman's pregnancy continues, the diaphragm is displaced upward, making it more difficult for the lungs to expand. This causes a reduction in the tidal volume that could be as great as 20%. It's not uncommon for women in the late stages of pregnancy to feel short of breath on a regular basis. These patients should never be placed in a prone position. Around four weeks, cardiac output begins to increase by 20%. As stated earlier, the heart rate will increase by 10 to 20 beats per minute as the pregnancy progresses. Because of arterial dilation late in the second and third trimesters, the blood pressure may begin to fall. The mother has a natural response of renin and angiotensin II that is secreted and may develop a resistance to the constricting effects of these hormones. As with any other injured patient, the primary survey of the injured pregnant patient addresses the airway or C-spine control, breathing, and circulation, with the mother receiving treatment priority. Supplemental oxygen is essential to prevent maternal and fetal hypoxia. Severe trauma stimulates maternal catecholamine release, which causes vasoconstriction within the uterus and the placenta. This can lead to a compromised fetal circulation. Prevention of compression of the inferior vena cava is also essential to optimize maternal and fetal hemodynamics. 
Pregnant patients beyond 20 weeks gestation should not be left supine during the initial assessment or any other time after that. Left uterine displacement should be used by tilting the backboard to the left or, as a final measure, the uterus can be displaced manually by pulling it to the left. Hypovolemia should be suspected before it becomes apparent because of the relative pregnancy-inducing hypovolemia and hemodilution that we spoke about earlier that may mask significant blood losses. Aggressive volume resuscitation is encouraged even for normotensive patients. The secondary survey consists of obtaining a complete history, including an OB history, performing a physical exam, and evaluating and monitoring in the fetus. The obstetrical history is important because the identification of comorbid factors may alter management decisions. A history of preterm labor or placental abruption puts the patient at increased risk for the recurrence of this condition. The obstetrical history should include the date of the last menstruation, expected date of delivery, and any problems or complications of the current or previous pregnancies. Determination of the uterine size provides an approximation of the gestational age. Measurement of the fundal height is a rapid method for estimating fetal age. Determination of fetal age and hence fetal maturity is an important factor in the decision approach regarding early delivery. The fetus is usually considered viable when it has a 50% chance of survival outside the mother. If neonatal facilities are available, this usually means at 25 to 26 weeks gestation or an estimated weight of 750 grams. More aggressive institutions use 24 weeks gestation or an estimated weight of 500 to 600 grams as a cutoff point, although chances of survival are then reduced to 20 to 30 percent. It should be noted that even with the best of ultrasound dating criteria, unless the time of conception is known exactly, the assessment of gestational age is subject to one to two weeks of uncertainty. Decisions on fetal viability are made on the basis of the best gestational age available. When estimating the fetal age in the resuscitation area, a rough guide might be that when the fundus of the uterus extends beyond the umbilicus, the fetus is potentially viable. Let's take a look at some treatment modalities. The prime directive of the paramedic in dealing with a traumatic OB patient is to ensure the oxygenation of both the mother and the baby. Using a pulse ox, administer oxygen to maintain an O2 saturation of greater than 95%. It's important to remember that signs and symptoms of shock may be hidden from you until massive blood loss takes place. The mother could have a blood loss of 30% and without it showing the traditional signs and symptoms of shock. Always work off the assumption that your patient is either in shock or will shortly go into shock while caring for her. Biologically, the body is designed to shunt blood from the fetus to maintain the life of the mother. You'll hear me repeat this over and over. The best hope for the baby's survival is aggressive treatment of the mother. The protocol for the treatment of a pregnant trauma patient remains similar to those for a non-pregnant one. Assess the abdomen to determine if it is rigid or board-like. If either of these symptoms are present, you might in, they might indicate an abrupt placenta or a ruptured uterus. Both are life-threatening to the mother and the baby. If your patient is bleeding vaginally, do not place any bandages or dressings in the vagina itself, but across the opening. The administration of a bolus of 20 cc's per kilogram will stimulate the production of antidiuretic hormone, also known as vasopressin, from the posterior pituitary gland. This is also the same area from which oxytocin is secreted. Therefore, in addition to providing a fluid bolus, which will increase the circulating volume as well as the preload, 
This bolus will also stimulate the production of oxytocin, which will cause some degree of vasoconstriction, thus reducing the amount of bleeding. Dealing with trauma in the pregnant patient will be one of the most stressful calls that you'll ever run. My advice for providing the best care of both mom and baby is to focus on what is best for the mom. In doing so, you'll set up the best possibilities for survival of the fetus. Thanks again for listening. With this episode, we launch a new feature found in our show notes entitled the 10-Minute Medic Review. With each episode, we'll include three to five national registry-type questions. In addition to the answers, we'll give a rationale for each one. I hope you enjoy it. Next week's podcast will review the threefold pathophysiology of asthma and how you should respond to patients suffering from an exacerbation of it. See you next week.